This episode deals with the abuse and murder of children. So if this is a trigger for you, please pass this one up and come back next week. This episode is not for all listeners. Cordell Farrington is a Bahamian serial killer who is known for his paintings of young boys crying, which is terrifying because he killed four children and an ex-lover. Cordell was born in 1968 and became the father of three children. His youngest was only three months old at the time of his arrest. He was working as a clerk at a hardware store, which faced a small grocery store across the street and was reportedly, by all accounts, an exemplary employee. It was at his workplace, which was located across the street from a local supermarket, that he found his victims. His victims were innocent, hard-working young boys who he proceeded to rape, kidnap, and kill. They held part-time work bagging groceries at the supermarket when they caught this predator's evil eye. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thanks for listening. It would mean the world to me if you would take a couple minutes to give me a five-star rating and a nice review on whatever platform you use to listen. It helps me get more listeners. Thank you so much for your time. Today's story takes us to the Bahamas, and it's a doozy. The Bahamas are known for their gorgeous sandy beaches, clean turquoise waters, and friendly inhabitants. But there is something about the Bahamas that you might not know. The Bahamas holds the third largest wine cellar in the world. The Grey Cliffs Wine Cellar holds 250,000 bottles from over 400 winemakers in 15 countries. It also holds third place for the world's largest barrier reef. This reef sits along an underwater trench called the Tongue of the Ocean. It runs parallel with the island of Andros. Finally, the Bahamas is home to its own sea monster. It's called the Lusca. The mythical monster has been spoken of since a large sea creature washed ashore in 1896. People have reported seeing the creature, which is described as half shark, half octopus, near a large blue hole off of Andros. The tide at the blue hole has been said to rise and fall to the breathing of the Lusca. The most likely scenario, according to experts, is that what people have actually seen is a giant octopus rather than a deep-sea monster. Just like in the cartoon Scooby-Doo, most monsters seem to end up being human, and of course, that is the case in today's true crime story. In 2003, Cordell Farrington, a gruesomely evil man, was walking along the beauty that is the Bahamas. The happy people who lived on Grand Bahama were peacefully unaware of the evil that lived beside them. A man who once studied to be a priest preyed on the young and the innocent. First one boy went missing, then another, and another, and another, and another. The first boy to go missing was Jake Grant, who was 12 years old. It was May 9th of 2003. Only seven days later, Mackison Colas, age 11, was last seen going on an errand for his mother. Eleven days after that, D'Angelo McKenzie, who was only 13, disappeared on his way to school. Two months later, Junior Remy, who was 11, was reported missing. And two months after that, Desmond Roll, 14, disappeared after working his shift at a local supermarket. 
The people of Grand Bahama knew something was very, very wrong. It was at this point that cadaver dogs were flown in. The Bahamian Defense Force called in help from South Florida, but with no clues, no reports, no leads, and over 25 people who had been questioned and released over the five months prior. There were still no firm suspects in this case. The hope was to find the bodies. Perhaps the dead would give them some clue as to what happened to these missing children. The police were struggling to find the killer in their midst. The local police contacted Britain's Scotland Yard and Americans FBI to consult. News of a Bahamian serial killer went worldwide. The Bahamian government tried to do damage control by assuring tourists that it was still safe to travel to the Bahamas. People were experiencing unease when rumors of satanic sacrifices, witchcraft, and voodoo began to circulate as well as stories of an unidentified gray van cruising around Freeport looking for little boys. With no crime scene, no solid suspect, and no clues, the police openly admitted that they had no idea what happened to the boys. They had a man in custody, but not enough evidence to convict him. Was he the killer? There had been many false leads and bad information. The tension was spreading on the island and among the officials. The last thing they wanted was panic, or someone hurting someone else by becoming a pronounced vigilante. In the weeks between the last boy going missing and the police announcing that they were bringing in help, tension was at an all-time high. News was far-reaching. Adam Walsh of America's Most Wanted was offering his services. People were becoming suspicious of their neighbors and acquaintances. Haitian immigrants always a heated debate within the Bahamas, came under even closer scrutiny. Their ways were not the ways of the Bahamians. Their practices and religions were not the same as the Bahamians who questioned them. Wasn't voodoo satanic in nature? Investigators realized after several months that one of the disappearances didn't quite match the pattern of the others. A month after the last boy disappeared, police released a bombshell. The first boy to vanish was not part of the other missing boys. Jake Grant's dying body had been hidden in some bushes near a swimming pool that he and some other boys had been playing in. For months, the boys who had been with him had kept silent about the truth of the matter. The reality was that Jake had been in some trouble in the pool. When the boys pulled him out of the water, he had water running from his mouth and nose. The boys dragged him into the bushes and hid his body because they were afraid they would get into trouble. They said nothing for months. Three of the four boys who were being charged with manslaughter were Haitian and didn't speak the local language. They were all between 11 and 13 years of age. Police made a statement that this case was very different from the other four missing boys and that the case for those boys was still ongoing. Perhaps the high tension the increased police force, and fear of being found are what led to Cordell Farrington, the murderer, into turning himself into police. He knew it was only a matter of time before he would be caught. Maybe, if he turned himself in, he would be given leniency. Six months after the boys began to disappear, the killer came to the police station. Like most serial killers, Cordell Farrington seemed to lead a mostly normal life. 
He had been a psychiatric patient and a former drug addict, but in 2003, he seemed to have his life together. He had a new job, a relatively new girlfriend, a new child, and a budding hobby as an artist. His friends said that Farrington was bright, articulate, and an avid reader of the Bible. Not only that, but he inspired others because he had kicked his crack habit. He had only moved to Grand Bahama from Nassau a year and a half before his murder spree began. Once in police custody, he began to tell how he became a serial killer. In 2000, he met a man named Jamal Robbins. Jamal was going through rehab at the same time that Cordell was. They fell in love. Unfortunately, Jamal relapsed and went back to drugs. He stole to fuel his addiction. In July of 2002, Jamal threatened to leave the relationship. Jamal and Cordell did not share a home. At the time, Cordell, who was 35 years old, was living in a home with two other roommates. Cordell had invited a fourth man into his home and his bed. This man's name was Oterio Floyd. He was only 21 at the time. He lived with Cordell in his room for about six months before Cordell moved to another room when his two other roommates moved out. Oterio said it was also around this time that he began to see Jamal around the apartment. Oterio testified that he heard Cordell and Jamal arguing. Cordell was telling Jamal that if he sold his body, he would likely get AIDS. After the argument, Cordell said to Oterio in a joking kind of way that he could just kill that boy. Oterio said the conversation was short and didn't appear to be anything more than a sarcastic joke. He went to his room and went to sleep. He went to his room and went to sleep. Oterio was wakened by noises around 6.30 in the morning. A couple minutes later, Cordell was at his door saying, Terry, Terry, I killed him. Oterio was not happy about being awoken so early and didn't believe Cordell at first. But after being led to another bedroom and confronted with a dead body laying face up on the floor, surrounded by blood, he couldn't deny the truth any longer. It was Jamal's body. He had been bludgeoned repeatedly over the head with a metal pole. Oterio was rightly confused and angry. He asked Cordell what he had done inside their home. Cordell paced the hallway, asking if Terry was going to tell. Oterio, afraid for his life, told Cordell that he couldn't tell anyone. He didn't want people to know he was gay. He didn't want his mother or the police to know. Terry reportedly wouldn't enter the room that Jamal's body was in, but Cordell ended up forcing his hand. He threatened Oterio by shaking him and saying, Terry, Terry, catch yourself. I will kill you and your family. The two then worked together, going into the bedroom, wrapping the body, soaking up the blood with towels and sheets. They then carried the body into the back of Cordell's car before throwing Jamal into some bushes off of Grand Bahama Highway. About six months later, Cordell moved in with a girlfriend who he had been dating. Her name was Dean. She said that she met Cordell at a gas station and that they began living together in 2003, a few months before the little boys began to disappear. 
She reported that they seemed to have a great relationship and that he was happy to be father to their three-month-old daughter. It was in May of 2003 that he took his first young boy. The boy's name was Maccus and Colas. He went missing on May 16, 2003 and was last seen by his mother. Farrington told police that he had picked the boy up on Pioneer's Way, Freeport. He confessed that he took Mackison home, ordered him to take a shower, and told him he was going to kill him. According to his statement, Farrington said that when the boy asked why he had to kill him, he replied by simply saying he had to do it. Farrington told police that he bound the boy by his hands and feet with duct tape and struck him on the head several times with a wooden plank. He then put the boy's body in the trunk of his car, drove to Barbary Beach, and buried him there. Two weeks later, he returned to collect the remains. An outburst by a sister of the deceased prompted the judge to order that all relatives leave the court. You took a brother from me, she said. You were supposed to die as she was escorted out of the courtroom. The second boy taken by Cordell was D'Angelo McKenzie. He was last seen by his grandfather on May 27, 2003. Farrington told police he picked up the boy in the parking lot of the Church of God while he was heading home from school. He said he asked the boy to go home with him and pick up some equipment for the church. He confessed that he took the boy home and had sex with him twice. He asked the boy about his family and told him that he was going to have to kill him. The boy said that he only wanted to go to school and to get a good education. Farrington then bound the boy with duct tape and hit him in the head several times with a wooden plank just like the first boy. He put the boy's body in the trunk of the car and drove to the beach again to hide the body. Junior Remy was reported missing on July 29, 2003 and was last seen by his mother. Farrington told police he had picked the boy up at the rear of Christ the King Angelican Church and took him home. There he ordered the boy to take a shower, but the boy refused. Farrington told investigators that he bound the boy with duct tape and the child started to scream, so he stabbed him in the neck with a knife. All the while, his own son was in another room. He told police that he took the boy's body and put it in the trunk of his car. Once again, he drove to the beach to hide the body. Farrington told police that he was very sorry the boy had to die in such a horrible way. Desmond Roll was last seen by his mother on September 28, 2003. Farrington said he picked the boy up at the park while heading to Williamstown. He told the boy he knew his mother and brother and having gained his trust, drove to a bushy area where he handcuffed and raped him. Farrington then slit the boy's throat, took his body back to the car, and committed a sex act. He took the boy's body to Barbary Beach, slit open the chest cavity, removed his heart, and severed his limbs. Farrington told police he was trying a new way to kill. All four boys that were murdered by Cordell had worked part-time packing groceries at the supermarket across from the hardware store. There was also evidence presented that Cordell participated in bestiality. What amazes me is that, that the bodies can be fully decomposed enough after only two weeks for him to go and gather the bones. 
I also wonder if there was evidence on the bones that he had gathered as to whether the first boys had been torn apart the way he did with the last one. Either way, he's a disgusting human being and must have derived pleasure from holding power over others. His ex-girlfriend said that Cordell had made mention of being physically and sexually molested as a child, but she could never imagine him being capable of what he later admitted to. Cordell pled guilty to the charge of manslaughter, stating that he acted with diminished responsibility. When asked if he had any final words to say to the families, he broke into tears, stating, I couldn't fully understand what happened, but I asked forgiveness from the family members. His attorney said he suffered from a severe personality disorder. She had to admit, however, that he had been a normal, law-abiding citizen and a productive part of society. The judge in the case stated that the promising lives of four young boys had been taken and that the court should not afford him mercy beyond what had already been given to him. He would not be put to death, but would hopefully spend the rest of his life in jail. According to the judge, who stated, the killings were horrific and not of someone who should be readmitted into society. Cordell was sentenced to life imprisonment for four terms, one for each boy's life he took. The sordid life of Mr. Farrington is one that the psychologists of the Bahamas will likely study for years to come. Here was a bisexual man who had three children, a woman with whom he also claimed he had a loving relationship. She came to the trial, testified, and confirmed it. She stated that, quote, she was living with a serial killer and didn't know it. He was so nice, end quote. In his confession to the murder that he killed Mr. Jamal Robbins, it was because he loved him so much that he wanted to be with him forever. Killing him was a way to do that. Like many serial killers, he returned to the body and it ended up keeping his lover's bones. He kept them in a room in his girlfriend's house where he also kept driftwood, conch, craft, and painting supplies. He made sure to tell his girlfriend that the room was off limits to anyone. He also went back to the bones of the young boys and gathered them into boxes to keep as well. He kept them all in the girlfriend's home, unbeknownst to her. She testified that she kicked him out of her home shortly before he gave himself up to police. She noted that he had been losing weight very quickly and she suspected that he was using cocaine again. After kicking him out, his ex-girlfriend had unknowingly packed the boxes filled with bones along with all his other belongings and set them outside onto her front porch for him to gather. It was there that the police found the bones of Cordell's ex-lover and three of the boys. The fourth boy's body was found on Barbary Beach after Cordell led police to him. When Cordell turned himself in, he stated he still had feelings and thoughts about killing and would likely do it again. Part of me wishes that all people who have those feelings would be man enough or woman enough to do what Cordell did and turn themselves in. He knew what he did was wrong. He felt guilt about it and was self-aware enough to realize that he couldn't control his nature and that he needed help. He needed to protect others by imprisoning himself. He also likely knew he would be caught soon anyway. He is currently still in jail in the Bahamas.
This case was a really heavy one, so I'd like to leave on a lighter note. This story is from online. It's by Alicia and Jared, and it is about travel poop. So if you don't want to hear about that, just end the podcast right now. Alicia and I were on a bus somewhere in rural China. I can't remember where we were going, but I do remember it was a pretty run-down public bus, and the trip seemed to go on forever. We were half-dozing on a hard seat, idly staring out the window as the Chinese landscape passed us by. We were wishing we could get to our destination sooner rather than later. It was hot, no air conditioning, and the road was bumpy as hell. Locals constantly stared at us, pointing and trying to get stealthy selfies with us, which is pretty common when you're probably the first white people they have seen in weeks. The landscape outside the window changed, and we found ourselves driving through a small village with one main street and a string of shops, mostly closed, lining the passage. Suddenly, my stomach cramped up, my face distorted, and my sphincter shut tighter than a nuclear safety valve. Alicia immediately noticed my change in demeanor and asked if I was okay, already knowing the answer. Babe, I'm about to shit my pants. Not missing a beat, my beautiful fiancé acknowledged my unfortunate, frightening predicament with a caring, what the fuck, again? And semi-violently nudged me away from her into the aisle. I stood up and shuffled towards the front of the bus, pains shooting through my stomach with every precarious movement. Ni hao, I said to the driver, exhausting my entire Mandarin vocabulary in one fell swoop. Um, toilet, I muttered, while trying to show the urgency of the situation with jolted body language. He ignored me, too busy focusing on driving through the sleepy village. Ni hao, I repeated, then said stop, while putting my hand up in a gesture that I thought everyone would understand. He ignored me again, and I asked once more in a much firmer tone and pointed to the closed door. He paid little attention to the foreigner yapping away in complete gibberish and instead just waved his hand in the air as if shooing away an annoying fly. At this point, I hit situation critical and lost all self-control and politeness. If you don't stop right now, I'm going to shit all over your fucking bus. I don't know if he understood me or suddenly realized that he was facing a much bigger problem than a tourist bugging him as he went about his job, but he made eye contact with me, looked at my hand squeezing my ass, and stopped the bus. The door opened and I stumbled out, frantically looking left and right at the endless row of padlocked doors. Nothing was open and I didn't have time or space in my intestines to run around in search of a restaurant. I crept along, back arched and muscles engaged, looking for something, anything that looked like it would have a bathroom in it. Up ahead, like a gift from God, I saw an open door. I stepped into the darkness and was confronted with a flight of steep timber stairs. I did my best to levitate to the top, knowing that any sudden movements would result in ruined underwear, and arrived at the end of a small hallway. I heard laughter ahead and saw the faint glow of a television. With literal moments to spare, I stepped into the unknown. In front of me, sitting on round plastic chairs, was an entire Chinese family eating noodles. Their attention left the small TV, and all eyes were now firmly on me, the strange Caucasian hairy man standing in their living room. Ni hao, I squeaked out, and their mouths gaped open in disbelief. 
Toilet, I said, pointing at my stomach and then pointing at my rear end. Without taking their eyes off me, the eldest man in the house, a stately-looking fellow with a wispy white beard, said something I couldn't comprehend, and a young boy, perhaps only five, stood up and walked over. He took my hand gently and led me back down a darkened hallway. He grabbed a door handle, twisted and pushed it open to reveal a small cubicle with a squat toilet in the center and a bucket of water next to it. Never before have I been so relieved to see a filthy hole in the floor. I slammed the door, dropped my pants, squatted as low as possible, and loudly defecated the entire contents of my bowels into the porcelain. Among the noisy and painful squirts, I could hear horns going off, and I remembered that the bus driver was still waiting on the street for me. It took a few minutes, but soon the pain in my stomach subsided, and I felt like I was in a position to move without fear of having last night's dinner make a reappearance. With no toilet paper around, I used the bucket of water to clean myself and the toilet up, and I prayed to any deity that would listen that the horrid smell would eventually disappear. Feeling almost human again, I opened the door and came face to face with the entire family standing outside the bathroom, eagerly awaiting to meet their new, uninvited guests that had made use of their private facilities. Zai Zai, I said sheepishly, thank you, and ran down the stairs faster than an antelope under chase. The bus driver was still on the horn, and Alicia was standing in the door, one foot on the road, screaming for me to hurry up. As I sprinted toward the bus, he started taking off, and I ninja leaped into the moving vehicle. He was trying to leave without you. I was yelling at him to wait, Alicia said. Where the hell did you go? I told her what happened, and she sat there silently before busting out into laughter. Clearly my embarrassment was her entertainment. Such a lovely and supportive partner. We then settled back into our seats, avoiding the rest of the bus passengers' glaring stares. The last time I shat in a Chinese family's house is something that makes me laugh every time I think about it. When I tell this story to friends, the image of the family staring at me as I burst into their house is burned into my memory. I think it's funny, and I'm glad to have this story to share with the world. Part of me hopes that a member of that family also has a blog, and somewhere on it there's a story titled, The Time a Random White Man Burst Into Our House and Destroyed Our Bathroom. I hope you guys enjoyed that story as much as I did. Uh, once again, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a few minutes to um, rate and review it and tell a friend. Uh, if you'd like to become a monetary supporter, there is a link in the bottom of the episode description that can take you to um, a good place where you could do that. Uh, thank you all for listening and fair winds and following seas to all of you.